The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Ephesians is a small book of the Bible in the New Testament. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to, uh, to a church in a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus was a, a huge city and the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. And for about two years, Paul spent time in Ephesus as a, minist- as, a, as a missionary where lots of people, he had a very effective ministry where lots of people became followers of Jesus. And many years later, Paul would be imprisoned in Rome. And it's from that prison where he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And why he writes this letter is really important, important for us to understand it. It wasn't a thank you letter. It wasn't a um, I'm really mad at you letter. It wasn't like some of his other letters he's written to churches uh, um, calling out specific sin or, or um, uh, unpacking Old Testament prophecies and what it means for us. Um, you see, Ephesus was, was an intimidating place, and Paul's purpose for writing this letter was to encourage them to, to stand firm in the faith and to, to live lives worthy of the, their calling. Um, it was intimidating for their small group of Christians that, that met there in Ephesus. They were marginalized in a culture tolerant of everything except the gospel message. Uh, they lived in an ungodly society. Marriage and business and politics were corrupted by self-interest and wa- at widespread proportions. I'm talking about Ephesus, not, you know, not, other, not Tucson, Ephesus. So, so everything, every area of society and relationship was, was, was broken and every viewpoint was welcome except the Christian message. And Paul wanted them to know where their truth and hope really rested. He wanted them to know in the midst of all these changes, in the midst of all this, these, um, these pagan and, and ungodly um, ways that people are living, we want you to know where your hope really is, that you're secure in Christ no matter what happens around you. Their hope was anchored in, their eternal, in the eternal purposes of God that were set in place before they were even born, not in the changing climate of the culture. They were raised out of spiritual death and into spiritual life by the power of God. Their hope was uh, in that they needed to know that how the gospel would transform their lives every day in their everyday areas of life, like family and marriage and business and politics and, and even in their leisure and celebration. Paul wanted them to know that the gospel not only takes you out of spiritual death and into spiritual life, it's going to inform your decisions that you make today in your family and who you will marry and where you will work and how you'll conduct yourself in your job. And so it was a letter from Paul to the Christians at Ephesus to say, here is what the gospel is. And here is how it will transform you. Here is the amazingly beautiful plan of God from eternity past for you. And it's going to change your life. As you trust in Christ and believe in what he has done for you and believe in the plans of God, your life will will never be the same. You will be moved from, from insecurity to security, from chaos to contentment, from striving to resting, from unbelief to belief. And you'll live your lives in the peace and grace of God. That's why we're calling this series Dear Church, because it's a letter to you. It's not just a letter specifically to an ancient city in an ancient world a long time ago with specific problems. It's a letter to all of us who desire to know God and to live lives transformed by the gospel. And so we want you to see this letter 
to you. Paul is addressing what it means in simple yet profound ways, what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, and to hope in the gospel. Something that we can start the year off with. And this letter likely takes up just maybe four, five, or six pages in all of your Bible, and yet it will take you and I our lifetime to understand and to implement what it really means. But we can turn to this small book in the New Testament, this letter written uh, so long ago. We can turn to this with confidence because it is part of God's Word. It is part of God's God-breathed Scripture that means to teach us and correct us and put us back on the right path and impact our lives the way it has for countless of Christians before you and I for centuries. So let's dive in. Let's dive into this wonderful letter that Paul has written to us. We're just reading two verses today, but we're going to take the whole time. We're not getting off easy just because it's two verses. We're going to take the whole time to unpack this. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and ending in verse 2. Okay. Paul, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. may seem just like a little introduction, and it is an introduction, but it's packed with so much meaning. The introduction gives us all that we need to see in this letter, all that we need to know regarding our lives and how we are to live and, and even who we are. Isn't this a pretty bold statement? In these two verses has everything that you and I need to know for our life. Everything we need to know about how to live our lives is in these two verses. And here it is. Our, our world's most, most fundamental problem, our world's most fundamental problem is that we don't understand who we truly are that, we are, that we're made in God's image, created to know and enjoy and glorify God all the days of our lives. And instead, we don't know who we are, that we are that person made in God's image, meant for His glory and our joy. And so we supplement that we, we, we don't understand who we truly are, and so we, we define ourselves by so many other things, by our items and our accomplishments, our work titles and our wealth, our desires, our goals, even our longings, even our sufferings can be things in our life that, that, I, that we are identified by. This is who I am. I'm, I'm a person who, who suffers. I'm a person who, who succeeds. I'm a person who has this or has accomplished that. But when you know who you truly are, we can then rightly deal with the issues of our lives. And Paul desires to show us who we truly are so that by knowing who we truly are, it would impact and transform everything that you and I do. And so Paul addresses the audience here in a couple different ways. He says they are saints in Ephesus and they are also faithful in Christ. These two identities have tremendous meaning and Paul wishes to shape our thinking for what is about to come in this letter by looking at these two identities, these two titles, these two ways of describing who we are. We're, we're saints in Ephesus, and we are faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's look at these two phrases. First, they're saints in Ephesus. We live in a particular place and in a particular time, as the people did back then. According to the New Testament, if you're a Christian, you're a saint, young and old, Rich and poor, wise and simple, if you're a Christian, you are a saint. You're holy. You're set apart. 
You're designated by God for His holy purposes. That's what it means to be holy, to be designated for noble and special use. For the Bible, a person does not become a saint by years of good behavior or becoming an elite Christian, but we are saint by the virtue of our being raised from spiritual death to spiritual life and designated for God's good purposes. And having that identity, we find ourselves in a particular place and at a particular time. You and I who trust in Jesus, we are, we are called saints of God. We are holy and set apart for God's purposes, and yet we, we live in a time. We live in, in the 21st century. We live in a, in a space, in a place. We live in Tucson. It's part of a state of Arizona, part of a country, the United States. We live on a certain planet. So we are saints of God, and yet designated for His purpose in a specific place at in a very important time. We, we quickly read this phrase, the saints who are in Ephesus, without much thought because we don't understand the ancient world. We don't understand how, how weird this phrase would be for them as they were hearing it for the first time. Because of what Ephesus was like and how sinful and pagan and corrupt it was, it was these two phrases together are strange, saints in Ephesus. It's kind of like saying to the Christians in Hollywood or the Christians on Capitol Hill or the Christians at Planned Parenthood or... The Christians that think of whatever, whatever sect of, of our society that seems to be a difficult place for Christians to exist and to live. The phrases do not seem to go together because the challenges to faith in those places where Christians live were so difficult. And so for them to hear the saints in Ephesus was very strange. It's like, yeah, what does it mean? What does it mean to be a Christian in Ephesus? What does it mean to be a Christian in Tucson, in Marana, in Salrita? An oracle. What does it mean to be a Christian in Oro Valley or in my specific job? Ephesus was the uh, fifth largest city in the world at the time and was engaged in passionate pagan worship. And the Christians would wonder, what difference can I make here? What difference does it make that I am a Christian in this city? I mean, look at me. I am just a drop in the bucket. I, I, my voice is, is, is just... Uh, cannot be heard from the shouts of pagan worship in the streets. There was, in, in the book of Acts, there's, uh, the Apostle Paul even recalls a time in Ephesus where, where those who were Christians in the city of Ephesus were preaching the gospel, and they were arrested, and they were brought to the city square, and the entire city, 50,000 people, came out and started shouting, uh, praise be to, Eph- to Artemis. Artemis in Ephesus, they were praising their pagan god as a way of saying, we, we have control of this city, not you. It is our god, our pagan worship that rules the day, not yours. And the Christians are thinking, why are we here? What point does it make that we exist in this city that does not want us, that does not receive our message? We're not doing any good at all. But Paul wants them to know that they are set apart that they are there in a specific place and time for God's purpose. And it's good that they are there. They're brought into God's special and good purposes for the world. They are, in fact, privileged. They are privileged. That's what saints are. They're privileged to be in such a a difficult place for Christians. We're, We're not in Ephesus, right? We are not in Ephesus. We're in Tucson and Arizona. We're in the United States. And in a culture that that misplaces, like Ephesus, we, 
we're in a place and time and in a culture that misplaces priorities about work and money and time and family. We're in a culture that worships numbers and affluence and size. We're in a culture convinced that human power is a path to glory and success. We may not be in Ephesus, but it's tempting in some measure, and maybe you have felt this, in some measure to say, God, change this city or take me out of it. Change this culture or just take me home. Change this, change this work environment or give me another job. Have you ever felt that before? Maybe you're feeling that now. And by calling them saints in Ephesus, I want you to see what Paul is saying. He is drawing out their identity as special servants of God to fulfill a role within that city. Even a priestly role. I mean, this is, this, the word saint is almost offensive to the Jews at the time. You're saying, hey, that's a privilege reserved for us. We are God's special people in a, in a certain place to proclaim God's good news to the broken. And this is a special role that God has for us. And now Paul is saying, this is for all of God's people. If you trust in Jesus, you are here for a specific purpose, and it's God's purpose. You're here because God loves this city. God has a good purpose for Tucson and Marana. And you know how I know? Because you live here. God has a special purpose for his gospel to be proclaimed in your workplace. He has a good purpose for your workplace. You know how I know? Because you work there. God has a good gospel purpose for your family. You know how I know? You get it, right? Because you're in that family. And that is why Paul tells us in his other writings, his other work, he says, if you are a Christian in your home, if you are a believer, even though not everyone is, that family is holy, that family is set apart, that family is sanctified and, and, and consecrated for God's holy purpose. Why? Because you're there. And it might, at times it might feel like, God, what do you, what do you have me here for? I'm, I'm not supposed to be here. I need to be with other people who are like me. I need to be with the other saints. I need to get together with the other people that think like me and act like me and talk like me. I shouldn't be here in Ephesus. This place is crazy. I shouldn't be here in Tucson. I shouldn't be here in this family, in this office. Here's some fun information that you would never know unless you went to seminary and spent thousands of dollars like I did. <laughs> or you spent $3 on Kindle to get a commentary for this book, okay? <laughs> And here's what it is. In the original manuscript, what we have in the earliest manuscripts of, of, the, of this letter from Paul to Ephesus, it doesn't have the word Ephesus in it. It just has a blank space. And so it says, what we have is these earliest manuscripts that say, to the saints in, and then there's a space. And this means that what we know, what scholars believe this to mean, is that Paul's intention in writing this letter is, to the saints in. Okay, now give this letter to Christians wherever they are and just write in where they are. To the saints in Ephesus. And that's the manuscript that we have that has been preserved. We have the letter to the Ephesians. But it likely went to other places in Asia. It likely went to all places all around the world. And it reaches us. It reaches us to the saints in Tucson. It reaches us today. Because Paul is saying it doesn't matter where you are. If you are there, God has a purpose for you in that place today. God has set you apart. The point is, this letter was meant to be sent all around the world in all 
surrounding heirs, and whoever got it, they were to receive this identity for who they were, to be reminded of who they are as saints in a particular place used by God for a good purpose. To the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Rome, to the saints in Tucson. And this is true wherever you are, wherever you live and work and play, you are there on God's purpose, and it's not an accident. You know, we need to start this year thinking like this. Where you are is not an accident. Where you are, God meets you and says, I'm not just here to give you a different life. I'm here to walk with you in the life that you have, to be faithful in Christ with every responsibility that you have. Where you work, the family you have, the the church that you're in, the neighborhood that you live in, the country that you have been blessed to live in, it has problems, but you are here and you're here for God's purpose to join in in his mission, in his purpose, his holy and good, consecrated purpose that was here way before you were and originated in eternity past. You're here for that reason. You see, so that's part of our identity. Maybe that needs to speak to you today as you hear this word that you are God's saints in Tucson, Marana, Salrita, Oro Valley, Picture Rocks. I don't know. There's a lot of places. <clears throat> And there's another identity that he gives to us. It says saints in Ephesus. But he also says you're, you're also in another place. You're also in another location. He says to the faithful in Christ Jesus. See, our lives are lived in a dynamically faithful and obedient relationship with God in the midst of us living in wherever we live. So it is God's desire for us that whether we live in Tucson in our city or in our job or in our family or in our neighborhood, we remember that that is not our only identity. We are not just citizens of an earthly place and time. We belong in Christ. We, we, we exist in, in, in Him to be faithfully obedient to everything He has called us to. Christians, until Jesus returns, must stay in two places. We stay in our earthly home and we stay in Christ. To be faithful in Christ is an identity that saturates the book of Ephesians. We, 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 we have reason to believe that Paul was the first one to really talk about this, to talk in Christ and show us the location of our identity is actually in Christ. And so he, it was the first time we see this phrase, in Christ, in Him, in Jesus. And it is pervasive in the book of Ephesians because he wants to show us that no matter where you are, Whatever struggle you're going into, I want you to be reminded that you're in Jesus. And if you're in him, you're as secure in the love of God as Jesus Christ himself is. And that's pretty secure. It means to live a life full of trust in what Christ has done for us, no matter what environment we find ourselves in. You know, when I say the term Christian, what might come to mind? When I say, what is, if I ask you, what is a Christian? I imagine there might be a bunch of different answers and even different ideas of, of how to go about answering that. that. That thought, Christian, can conjure up a lot of different ideas and interpretations. What does it mean? The title could be referring to just a Western tradition or a cultural identity or a cultural affinity. That as we live in the West, we live in, in the United States, that, that, uh, that to be a Christian is to not be Jewish or Muslim or Buddhist. So we kind of check that box that we're a part of this American experiment. We need to clarify, though, what it means to be a Christian. But the term in Christ leaves little confusion. It demands a different kind of reflection to really think about what does it mean to be in Christ? 
Am I in Christ? Is that where my identity rests, in the location of Christ himself, in his body? What does it mean to be in Christ? It answers who you are and, and what your value is. It describes that you are not what you do, but what Jesus has done for you. To be in Christ means that you are not what has been done to you, but what Jesus has done to you. To be in Christ means that our identity is not what you do. It does not determine who you are. But who you are in Christ determines what we do. And so to say I'm in Christ means that, that my value, my identity, my motivation, my, my, my joys and longings, the answers to all of my problems and suffering, every, everything is going to be answered because of what Jesus has done for me. These are fundamental truths. Fundamental truths for what it means to be a Christian. You know, a modern, a modern way of encouraging people as they struggle through life and find themselves in a difficult place where they say, God, why have you put me here? A modern way of encouraging people to, to cope with that is to get people to think better about themselves. So the answer to our struggle in a modern way is self-improvement. The answer to our pain is self-promotion. But these are just cleaned up ways of saying the word pride. Think more about yourself. The problem with this approach is that it's all about the self and not about living in Christ. We don't need to feel better about ourselves. We need to know that God who gives himself to us and for us in spite of us. You see, we don't need to just feel better when we're having a hard day. We need to know that there is a God who loves us in spite of how we're feeling, in spite of our lack of belief, in spite of our lack of accomplishment. And so Paul shows us who we are. He says, you live in two places. In the one place, a sinful, broken, corrupt environment filled with temptations and confusion. And, and, and in the other place, we live in Christ living our lives faithfully obedient to God who has loved us and set us apart for his good purposes. And so in one place we live here in this world and it's difficult. It's really hard and we struggle and we fail every day. And in the other place we live in Christ where we are, where we are uh, incorruptible, where we, where we stand on unshakable joy, where we have no condemnation because of Christ who died for us and loves us. And we find ourselves in this weird like schizophrenic identity. It's like, well, well, who am I? And so we kind of go back and forth in, in, in varying strength from one identity to the other. Here's the question. How on earth are we to not lose our minds? Isn't this difficult? Can we admit that this is difficult to be faithful in Christ and also God's people in Tucson, in our home, in our workplace? Can we just admit I don't know how to do that. This is truly exhausting. It is truly exhausting to live like that, to answer this question. It's so difficult. And that's why, because it's difficult, that is why we see so many saints, wherever they are, leaning in one identity or the other, which does great harm to who they truly are. Let me show you. If we if we latch on, we have some who latch on to, to one identity only. We're saints only. We're saints only. We, we're, we belong in Christ. That, the error there, if we're just one-sided in that, 
not seeing the value of where God has placed us. We will lean in error on our identity as saints only. We will, fall, we will fail to love our neighbor. We will grow indifferent to the suffering of others. We'll grow indifferent to the spiritual needs of others. We'll critique our environment and what is wrong with it. We will know all of those answers, and yet we will offer little or no good news to it. We will sit back and we will say, Jesus, save me from this horrible place. Just take me home. It's all going to hell in a handbasket, so just save me from all of this. And we will just critique the world at ad nauseum and offer little, if any, good news. But there's another way that we can error, by falling too much in the other identity, where we are citizens only. If we, if we lean too heavily on this identity too much, then our identity is, is in citizens of our place only, then we will become indistinguishable from the world around us. We will embrace the idols of our culture. We will embrace the morality and convictions of our, of our world. We will seek counsel from, from neighbors and co-workers, forgetting that God has given us His wisdom and His truth on which to depend and to lean. And what happens is when we see ourselves and forget that we are in Christ and see ourselves just citizens of this world only, we will desire to love others, which is good, but we will forfeit our moral convictions and obedience to a life of reverent holiness to Christ who has given His life for us, who is our supreme judge of our hearts and our actions. So do you see this dilemma? So what do we do? What do we do? How can we possibly be people who are faithful to the particular place and time in which we live and also faithful in obedience and love for Christ who has died for us? As Paul finishes up this introduction, he shows us how to do this. You see, just in two verses, we have everything that we need. He gives us a neon light hint to the answer for how to live in two places at one time without losing our mind or our soul. And so Paul would say, grace to you and peace from God. That's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen by the grace of God and the peace that fills our hearts. You need the grace of God that is unmerited blessing to you, the riches of his eternal blessings to you based on the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You need his life for you as a gift. The way that we live in these two identities is not through our own gritting our teeth and being the person that God has called us to be. The way that we do this is by receiving the gift of God, his unmerited favor, and we need peace. We need peace from God, the peace that will be the result of resting in the grace of God, the good news of God's life for us, taking our sin, giving us His righteousness. This great exchange where a perfect and holy God becomes like us, takes our sin, dies for us, lives the life that we should have lived, died the death we deserve to die, so that we can take His righteousness, growing in righteousness from one degree of His glory to the next. Don't lose who you are in Christ. Don't lose who you are in Tucson. For we find ourselves in two places. You know, we don't know 
we don't know much about Paul's circumstances when he writes this letter. We know that he's in prison. And we don't know because he doesn't tell us. But we know that he's in prison and it doesn't discourage Paul. He found the secret to finding contentment in troubling circumstances. So Paul is a great model for us as he shows us the secret to contentment by being in two places at once, in Christ and in prison. So Paul, where do you find yourself today? In prison. If we were to write a letter to Paul, we would say, to the saints in prison. That you are God's person here, set apart. And his plan for you is to proclaim the good news, where? From a birdcage. And what is he doing as he's stuck in this birdcage? He's singing. He's singing the good news. Because he knows that his identity is in Christ. No matter where he is, he is always in Christ. He wrote the letter likely to the Philippian church at the same time. When he was in this prison, he writes, the, got a lot done when he was in prison. It's, I'm not telling you to like, have any New Year's resolutions or anything. Like, if you really want to do good things for God, get in trouble, get thrown in prison. No, that's not it. He wrote the letter to the Philippian church around the same time, and he says this from one of, maybe one of your favorite passages in all the Bible, in Philippians 4, 12 to 13. He says, in any, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. What is he saying? Paul gets it. Paul gets it. He says, I've got it. I've figured it out. I know how to live in prison and in Christ at the same time. Being faithful wherever I am and in Christ all the time. I've got it. I've figured it out. I've figured out how to not lose my head, whether I'm in Ephesus or in Philippi or Rome or in prison or in debt or in wealth or in a hospital, no matter where I am. I'm always in Christ and he's always in me. And that's it. So he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says death cannot even separate me from my location in Christ. Paul, what if you die? What if they take your rights away from you? What if they marginalize you as a Christian? What if they don't receive your message? I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ and that will never change. Isn't that amazing? He figured it out. He says, and he's working in me because I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. He's working in me and he's working through me and his grace is working in me. And you know what the result of all that is? Peace. He says, I'm okay. I'm better than okay. I'm at peace. I'm at peace with what is happening. Paul says, grace and peace to you. You want to figure it out? You need to know the gift of God that hides you in the love of Christ apart from your work and merit and accomplishments. It's because of God and his work for you. You need to know that grace. You need to stop working for your salvation. You need to rest in Christ and then his peace will overflow in your life. And no matter where you are, you're going to be okay. In everything that comes our way, God's word may not give us specific answers. Right? Isn't this hard? God doesn't give us specific answers. Whatever struggle or dilemma we have, we want, to, we want a roadside, a road sign, and we often don't get it. We go to God's word and we say, God, give me the answer, and he doesn't give it to us. But we are given something else. We're given a repetitive and reliable and consistent plea from God's word to bend ourselves back into the gospel, to bend ourselves to the grace of God. And therefore, be transformed as new people to face whatever it is that we need to face. I don't know the answer 
for your life. I don't know the answer for your struggle, but I know that it has something to do with you trusting in the grace of God. I don't know what the outcome of your life is going to be. And God's word does not tell us the outcome of particular struggles, but it says, but I know the secret to it is resting in the grace of God. Paul takes what is common and natural like family and politics and struggle and suffering and living in a, in a uh, sinful society. He takes normal everyday stuff and he pours the grace of God into it. He says, I don't know the outcome of this, but I know the grace of God is the answer. And so that's what he does in Ephesians. He talks about all these normal, natural ways to live that we find ourselves in by living as saints in Tucson. And he just shows us the grace of God. He says, if you know this, if you rest in this, if you rely on this, you will have peace and God will be glorified no matter where you are. And that's how he closes his introduction, grace and peace. And this order is everything. We want peace. We want peace with God. We want peace with one another. We want peace with coworkers and family members and neighbors. We want peace with ourselves. We want to like who we are. We want a good life. We want that. How will you live in the world and in Christ without losing your head? Keeping your head, keeping your head and not losing your soul will hinge on grasping the relationship between everything that God tells us to do and everything that God tells us has already been done for us. Let me rephrase. Keeping your head in this world will all depend on your grasp of grammar. Let me show you. The relationship between the imperative voice and the indicative voice in Scripture. The imperative is all that God tells us what to do. So the imperatives are what you and I are familiar with in God's Word when we know when we, know we have to live a different way. So we go to God's Word and we see all of these rules. God tells us, you should do this and you should do that and you should live this way and you need to be honest and you need to not steal and you need to... You need to um, you need to give and you need to invest in others. You need to love. You need to forgive. So all of these imperatives, God's telling us, here's all the things you need to do. The indicative is all that God has done for us by his grace. And all his commands, everything that God tells us to do in his Bible depends on everything that he has already done for us. Grammar is important. Understanding the relationship between the two is so important. It can ruin your understanding of a conversation of facts. You fail at grammar, here's what I'm convinced of. I don't know much. You fail at grammar, you fail at life, okay? <clears throat> you will not have any friends. You fail at grammar, you're gonna fail at the gospel too. You're not gonna get it if you don't know the order of these things, that everything that God tells us to do is in, in his imperative voice is because of all that he has done. It depends on everything that he has already done for us, that he indicates for us. A panda walks into a cafe. <laughs> he orders a sandwich, he eats it, then he draws a gun and proceeds to fire at it at all the other patrons. Why? asks the confused surviving waiter amidst the carnage. As the panda makes towards the exit, the panda produces a badly punctuated wildlife manual and tosses it over to his shoulder. And he says, well, I'm a panda, and here is what a panda is. Look it up. The waiter turns to the relevant entry in the manual, sure enough, finds this explanation. Panda, large, black and white, bear-like mammal, native to China, eats, shoots, and leaves. <laughs> Grammar. 
will ruin your life. You don't get it? Let's look at the next one. What it's supposed to say. See, so panda, large black and white bear-like mammal native to China. He eats, shoots, and leaves. He eats, that's what his diet is. He eats, shoots, and leaves. Okay? All right. <coughs> if you get the order wrong, if you get the order and placement of the comma wrong, you miss the message. It's the same with the gospel. If you miss the order, if you switch it, then you're not talking about Christianity. You're not talking about the gospel. Everything that God tells you and I to do is dependent on everything God has already done for you. Paul says, if, if Jesus didn't die for you, if he didn't raise from the dead, if he is just another guy telling you a good way to live, you are stupid. His words, not mine. That's what he says. He says, why would you do that? Why would you live a life like that? But then he says, but. But if Jesus is God's promised Savior and humbled himself and became like us and he loved God the Father so much and obeyed God perfectly and when tempted to spare his own life, he did not, but he gave himself for sinners, willingly giving up his life for people who hated him. And he rose from the grave, destroying the curse of sin and death itself. And he sits enthroned on high in heaven where everything is his servant. And he turns to us and says, Everything that I have, everything that I have accomplished, everything that I have earned because of my obedience is yours as a gift of my grace to you. And we say, yes, that is good. I will take it. Thank you, Jesus. Then and only then will we know the peace of God. Then it's not stupid. Then we're not idiots for believing this. If, then we are, the most, we are the smartest people. We understand that it is not because of our own merit. It is not because of our own work. Because we have failed in that course of life. But if this is true, and that's what Paul will unpack for us in, the, in Ephesians, he's going to tell us everything that God has done for us before you and I were even born. And that's going to transform our lives if we believe it. Could it be that the beginning two verses and the final two verses of this letter are meant to tell us something? Absolutely. The first two verses, he says, grace and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you go to the end of it, and the last two verses says, peace to the be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all you who love our Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And here's something fun that's happening. The first two verses, he says, grace and peace. And then the last two verses, he says, peace and grace. You know what he is saying here? You know what he is saying? How amazing this is? The order is important. The, the book of Ephesians shows this order, that by trusting in the grace of God, it will lead to peace. And if we desire to have peace, it will be because we are dependent on the grace of God. And that's the bookend of this of the letter to the Ephesians. And everything in the middle is describing how to believe and understand and live out what God has done for us. The book of Ephesians follows this order. The first three chapters are filled with verbs exclusively in the indicative, except one instance. There's one verb that is not in the indicative. It's in the imperative, and that verb is remember. Okay, so that's almost like, it's like doesn't count. It's like every verse is saying, here's what God's done. Here's what God's done. Here's what God's done. Remember, remember what God has done. And then the first word in chapter four is the word 
therefore. Because everything that God has done, therefore, here's how you're going to live. And then the rest of the book, chapter 4, 5, and 6, is all imperatives. Here's what you do. Here's how you live your life. Here's how you love your spouse. Here's how you work in your profession. Here's how you engage in society. Here's how you have fun and celebrate. But we, we go to chapter 4, 5, and 6 all the time and say, how do I live as a Christian? And we say, okay, here's all the rules that I need to live by. That's not what it means to be a Christian. We want to know, the, we want to know what it means to be a Christian, we got to read chapter 1 through 3 to see what God has done. And he has some amazing things to say about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's going to blow your mind. So Paul tells us the whole gospel story, and it's meant to reshape our life. If you want to be faithful in Ephesus, wherever you live, it is not merely in how you cast your ballot or what Christian t-shirts you have on the front. I promise. It's going to be like this. And this way you say, it will be how you treat your spouse. Chapter 5. It's how you handle sorrow and grief, chapter 3. It's how you speak the truth when asked a question, how you serve and how you forgive others, chapter 4. It will be how you honor your parents and how you stand firm in the midst of worldly temptation, chapter 6. He will show us what will give evidence that we believe in the grace of God and we will have transformed lives that live faithfully in Him. You and I do not live in Ephesus. We live in Tucson. We live in other places. But wherever you are, Wherever you live, if you are in Christ, it should appear to the world around you that you seem to be a little out of place. Because you are. You and I are a little out of place. We live in two locations, not merely on earth. We live in Christ. Let it be so. Let's pray.